Hi everyone, this is episode 44 of the Get In My Garden podcast. I'm Aaron Moskowitz, and today we visit with Sarah Schuster, who is an herbalist, homesteader, and fellow podcaster based in Tennessee. We discuss southern homesteading, how to get more involved with herbalism, foraging for herbs in your area even if you're in a large city, planting in the woods to forage later, some widespread plants you can forage for in most bioregions, and much, much more. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen from and leave positive reviews on iTunes if you want to support the show. Also, follow on Instagram at GetInMyGarden, reach out to me there, or by dropping me a line on the website, GetInMyGarden.com. Finally, sign up for my new email list also on the website, which will soon feature awesome supplemental content to go with new podcast episodes. I'm adjusting the website over the next month to make this really easy. I have a podcast called Tending Seeds, and the subtitle of it is Adventures in Homesteading and Herbalism. And the reason I started it was that I found a bunch of other homesteading and herbal podcasts, but people had been doing homesteading and things like that for like over 10 years and were sort of, I don't know if they would call themselves experts, but for me, where I've just been doing this for a little over a year now, it felt like they were experts and really far out of my league in terms of their knowledge base. And so I thought, you know, for other people that are getting into this too, I thought it would be really neat to have a podcast that started with the beginning of my journey where people could follow along where I don't necessarily know what I'm doing all the time. And I can kind of just share my progress and my mistakes and kind of chronicle the journey of like walking my way you know, through all of this and kind of stumbling along the way. And hopefully that'll be useful to other people, but also really approachable. And your background is herbalism, isn't it? Yes. So I've had kind of a weird and varied life. Um, I was a school teacher for six years. I've worked in restaurant management. I was a Muay Thai kickboxer for several years. And then through it all, the one thing that always kept pulling me back was I always liked farming. I always liked working with plants. And so about a year and a half ago was when I started my journey to become an herbalist. And then I realized pretty quickly that I also wanted to be growing herbs. I was really passionate about the fact that there just aren't enough local domestic suppliers of herbs. Most everyone is using stuff that's being brought from overseas. Interesting. And not to throw shade at that because there are plenty of companies that have really good growing practices. So it's not that these are necessarily poor quality herbs, um, as long as you're doing your research about which companies you're, you're using. But I think in a lot of cases, you know, we say the medicine you need is what's outside your door. And so I think if I can grow a certain plant here and it's native to this area, why am I adding the carbon footprint and getting this plant from a foreign country and just everything it takes to get that plant to me when I could literally be growing it in my yard? Absolutely. Plenty of stuff that grows so easily and abundantly, even if you may not necessarily want it growing in your yard. And, you know, again, just to get back to that idea of what you need is growing outside your door. My friend who's an acupuncturist, you know, told me that from a traditional Chinese medicine perspective, the energy of that plant is going to be so much better and more attuned to what you need because you're both growing, so to speak, in the same environment. Kind of the similar idea of where people with allergies, you know, the first thing that people will suggest is, oh, you should eat honey that's local to your area to help fight your allergies. I think that just makes sense to extend that to other plants as well. It makes perfect sense to me. And then, of course, there's the bioenergetic agriculture people who talk about the energy of the plant itself. So the microbiome around the plant and your yard and your own physical body obviously will be affected, but then the actual energy of the plant and also having something that's freshly picked is a big deal. Definitely. And there are plenty of plants 
plants we can go forage for ourselves that don't stand up well to, you know, a hard drying process or a long storing and shipping time. So you're exactly right. You're much better off if you can get these, even if you can't grow them yourself, getting them locally from someone in your bioregion is going to be way more effective for you. Awesome. And you're located in Tennessee. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I'm in middle Tennessee. Um, We have 13 acres of land. We're about 30 minutes north of Nashville. It's a beautiful part of the country and also very verdant. And is it an easy place to be a homesteader? I think it is. I I think we're pretty lucky. I love North Carolina and the mountains there, but it's such a great place for herbalism. And because of that, it's a little saturated in terms of herbalists. And so I was worried about whether that would work for us because we actually talked about moving to North Carolina. And so, yeah, we've been in Tennessee for about 12 years and we decided to stay. And I love it here. And and like you said, it's very verdant. It's easy to homestead here. We have pretty heavy clay soil, but that's pretty easy to remediate in just a few seasons. Uh huh. And so, yeah, now we love it here. Well, and so what are you growing? This is our first growing season. So I'm doing a lot of foraging and wild crafting and then growing a mixture of things for us. So my background before growing herbs was I briefly did like a CSA. My first marriage was to someone that had a large CSA down in Florida. Uh-huh. We're trying to grow as much as we can for vegetables and things like that for our personal use and then growing herbs to do product making, making things for clients, and then hopefully being able to sell bulk herbs to other herbalists here, as well as when I'm foraging and wildcrafting. So we're kind of off to a slow start just because it's our first growing season. And a lot of the things I want to grow are woodland medicinal herbs, which can take a much longer, they're not ready in, in a season. Uh-huh. So this is sort of like playing the long the long game here is it's probably going to be a bit before the farm's like fully up and running. Does that include mushrooms and rhizomes and things like that and roots? So I'm not very well versed in mushrooms yet. I'm slowly learning about that, but I'm pretty shaky on my mushroom identification. So I wouldn't feel good about going out and foraging for those. But there are definitely plants where we are using the roots and the rhizomes. I actually just got some golden seal rhizomes Ah. from another grower that's actually based out of West Virginia. And so I'm planting those in our woods this weekend, actually. But that's another plant that you're looking at probably four to even six or seven years before you're able to harvest. Amazing. So what plants have you found on the property that you're foraging for? The very first day when we came to look at the house, I thought it was so cool. There was a huge patch of yarrow in the middle of this little driveway as soon as we pulled in and I looked at my husband I was like I feel like this is a really good sign because it's just one of my favorite plants we also have tons of blackberry bushes all over the property tons of like the spring kind of like yard medicinals I definitely want to talk about today because I think those are sort of everywhere depending on what part of the country you're living in Mm. Um, we have tons of elderflower honeysuckle mimosa goldenrod there's just it's so abundant here there's just so much Great. Well, I'm really interested in all that. And also I'm interested in how do people get involved in herbalism? What's the first step for someone who they don't know that much about herbs? How can they kind of start up? Well, I think if you're just wanting to learn, you know, casually for yourself, there are so many great resources out there in terms of books or, or podcasts, you know, YouTube channels and things like that to get started with. If you want to go more towards a program with a certificate, you know, there's no licensing body for herbalists in the, in the United States, but there are programs that give you a certificate of completion when you finish them. And so there are online schools that you can go through for things like that. I would really recommend getting onto the website for the American Herbalist Guild. Each state usually has a chapter and it's free to get involved and go to meetings for that. 
And a lot of times people in that community will organize plant walks so you can get used to doing like plant identification and just kind of figuring out what's already growing in your area. And that's super helpful. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, I I think that's a really good way to get involved. Um, I was doing a program where I met up with someone locally and that was like the first person that I actually went foraging with. That was a really quick way to like build a friendship and we're still friends to this day. And learn about your uh, bioregion really quickly, huh? Right, exactly. And, you know, there are tons of people out there, even if you just have a neighbor who's lived around here for forever, they probably know some of the plants and they may not know everything, but they probably know more than you and I do. And they can point point something out and something they learned from childhood about, you know, this plant or that plant, you know, learn from everyone you can. Oh, yeah. So what are some of the plants that are growing across the country that other people could forage for? And it really doesn't matter where they're living. Are there plants that are widespread enough to identify? Yeah, definitely. I don't know about maybe areas that are, you know, maybe New Mexico and Arizona in terms of, you know, deserts, but I think that most areas will have a good number of these. The good thing about some of these that I'm going to talk about now is that even if you're not in a homesteading kind of rural setting, even if you're more urban and suburban, these are things you can probably find like right outside your door in your lawn. Mm -hmm. So this is where I'll stick my neck out and say, hey, make sure you're not spraying your lawn with chemicals so you can eat this stuff. Oh, yeah. So just a good little disclaimer there. And also just don't spray your lawn. Chickweed is one that I really love. It's super adorable. It's this little kind of like ground cover plant and it has five white petals and but the each petal has this deep cleft on it. So it actually looks like it has 10 petals. This comes out really early on into the spring. I feel like it's a little bit sweet when you eat it. So it's edible as well as medicinal. You can just pull it and eat it raw in salads or my favorite way to eat it is as a pesto mm. and it'll freeze really well once you make that or you can even mix it into hummus. It's a really nutritive food. Um, A lot of folks also use this herb in oils and salves, so like a topical application. It's also a diuretic herb and it's a good blood blood cleanser and tonic and it's also really high in iron. I noticed that a lot of herbs, they'll say, oh, it's a diuretic or it's, you know, there's a lot of overlap amongst herbs. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And plants that grow in like a similar area or a similar time of year often will have that kind of overlap in terms of their herbal properties and qualities two others that I was going to talk about are cleavers and violets. And those actually will, you'll find often growing really close to and around chickweed as well. And so it's for me, even before we moved out to this property, just living in kind of a suburban house on like 0.2 acres, these are all plants that I was able to find really easily just growing in our yard, you know, often together. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really fun. Um, I love violet because the flowers, everyone, you know, can recognize those pretty easily. And those are great in salads, or you can make a syrup from those. Some people will preserve those by crystallizing those in sugar. And then they make really cool decorations for cakes and cupcakes and things like that. But the leaves, you know, the flowers and stuff you'll stop seeing after spring once it starts to warm up. But the leaves will usually stay if you have a shady area. They'll stay almost year round and you can keep eating from those as long as you've positively identified them. I tell folks when you're first starting to get into this, you usually want to find the plants when they're in flower just because it makes getting that correct ID a lot easier when you can see the whole plant leaves and flowers and all. But yeah, violet, it's a demulcent herb, meaning it sort of has like a mucilaginous quality. So it's going to be really soothing and cooling. So if you're dealing with like a dry hacking cough or bronchitis, you can make a tea from these leaves, let it steep overnight so that, you know, you get the heat and the cool of the water kind of pull all those qualities out into the tea and drink that. It's really moistening and soothing. I love it. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really fun. And then, 
you've probably met cleavers at some point if you've just been walking around your yard and then looked down and had this like green plant <laughs> kind of just like hooked onto your pants because it, it has these little little hooked hairs on the stem. I like to juice that. It's again, these are all plants that start really early in the spring. And so if you think about back before we had grocery stores and we could get whatever fruits and vegetables, you know, year round, if you think about kind of what you would have been eating during the winter, seeing these first green plants start to pop up in spring would have been really exciting for us. And all of these plants, they're, they're blood cleansers, they're really good nutritive herbs, they're kind of helping us wake up as we come out of that, you know, winter funk, so to speak, and just kind of getting our body like online again. That's so cool. Now, as far as herbalism goes, I've, you know, I'm from the Northwest, and there's kind of a tradition of Chinese medicine. And that includes sometimes the weirdest things imaginable, like reptile skin and, <laughs> you know, weird animal parts, almost right. like voodoo type stuff. So is that considered part of herbalism? Or is it really just the plants? I think it depends what type of herbalism you're really focused on. I'm usually doing kind of Western herbalism or folk herbalism is what we would call it in this area or Appalachian herbalism. I think, you know, going back to like the traditional Chinese medicine, there's definitely components of that that don't overlap with folk herbalism. For me, it's just the plants. Got it. Though I've also started to get into stone medicine recently. So using different stones and crystals but that's dealing with things more on like an energetic or emotional level, not so much affecting the physical body. Uh huh. So for physical stuff, I'm pretty much just sticking to plants. Gotcha. Well, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that is all very popular. I would say there's more focus on energy medicine than actual physical herbalism, huh, that's which really is also cool. very popular here. Yeah. And I think a really good way to bridge that if you're interested in one and wanting to get into the other would be to look at something like flower essences, since those are made, you know, from flowers, from plants. But those are also designed to work more on an energetic level with folks. Uh -huh. So it would be a good thing, you know, if your listeners, you know, out in New Mexico are more into the energetic work, that could be a, a really cool way to kind of work into that realm. Absolutely. Well, I've definitely been curious about flower essences over the years. From the experiences I've had with flower essences, you can definitely get sort of a really hmm. fast response from that. But you're also not going to use them for an acute physical symptom. You know, if you have strep throat, I'm not going to tell you to, hey, take this flower essence. We're going to hit the herbs. And then if that's not working, we're going to move on to antibiotics or whatever else. Yeah, we makes need sense. Sure. Awesome. Well, I'm interested in the idea that I mean, some herbs are spices, so some of them have essential oils, some of them are used in cooking and food and can be very nutritive. So do you have some examples of those? Yeah, definitely. So another food that you can forage for in early spring is garlic mustard, and that's actually considered pretty invasive and, and can push other plants out in the region. So if you have it around you, definitely hmm. go eat some and you're kind of doing a good deed at the same time. It's really high in vitamins E and C, iron, zinc, and calcium. But then my favorite herb, and I'm probably not alone in this, I think most herbalists, if you ask them, you know, what's your favorite herb, they might tell you nettles. Uh -huh, and yeah. yeah, it's, it's just awesome. So vitamins A and C, potassium, calcium, it's really high in iron. So if you're dealing with anemia, it also has a good deal of magnesium in it. Um, there's an herbalist named David Hoffman, who I love, and, and he's really well respected in our field. And his thing is pretty much when in doubt, try nettles. So if you have a client and you're just kind of looking at him going, I don't even know what to suggest here. I need to do some more research on this, but you don't want to send them away empty handed. 
give him a bag of tea, give him some nettles and have him try that because it's a really nourishing tea. You can use it as food. You can, you know, add, you know, just steam it. You can add it into soups. You, you can make an infusion from it. Um, if you're feeling like tired or depleted at all, it's just so nourishing and strengthening. It's also really good for allergy relief. They have found, so a lot of herbs you really want to, I don't advise using like a pill form because you really want to taste that and, and feel it, whether that's a tea or a tincture but they've actually done studies using like freeze-dried nettle capsules and they were just as effective as like over-the-counter allergy meds. Wow. Yeah, so it's like, it's so cool. Yeah, that's been my go-to actually. I've just always been... I mean, in the Northwest, there's there are nettles everywhere. And so people always make tea out of them. And But more recently, with allergies, that's been my go-to. Awesome. I'm so glad that's working for you. Oh, yeah. Very cool. I always joke. I think every tea blend I make, I start with nettles as my base. And I just kind of build from there because I love it. It's a great flavor. And now, I mean, the Chinese also have, from what I understand, certain builders. I don't I don't know what the, the terminology is that they use, but they, they start as like a baseline with certain herbs. Do you know about this or what some examples are of those? So I think in traditional Chinese medicine, you're going to see things more like ashwagandha and astragalus um, as sort of like builder herbs. There are definitely different herbs that the idea is basically you start taking them and you're going to take them for the rest of your life. They're considered just general herbs that you always just want to kind of have, at, you know, a fairly low to moderate dose in your life. Things like, you know, turmeric has become kind of like the darling of the herbal scene in terms of being anti-inflammatory, uh-huh. uh, which I would add like ginger and garlic into the mix for that. So getting back, you were saying, you know, cooking with herbs, those are like three that work really well together if you're doing just like a stir fry you know, I, I put ginger and garlic into almost everything. Mimosa is called in Chinese medicine is called the happiness tree. I, I don't, hmm. I don't know if you have that out where you guys are. I can't. I don't think so. Okay, it's a really cool looking tree. I always joke that it looks like something out of Dr. Seuss because the flowers are just these pink tendrils all coming out from this like center point and like a little fan almost, and just looks like something out of a Dr. Seuss novel. Um, but that's called, sounds awesome. Yeah, it's really neat. It's called the happiness tree in traditional Chinese medicine, and they use utilize both the flowers and the bark to deal with anxiety and depression. And uh, it's also anti-inflammatory. And so I just love the flowers. You know, I'll, I'll make tincture from those and from the bark, but I'll also just keep the flowers and dry them for tea. And I'll just use that all year round. And it's just, it's so like uplifting for your mood. Sounds like exactly what everybody needs. Right. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? Because our world is more anxious yeah. than ever. Yeah. Who doesn't need a little bit of that in their life? You know, and the same kind of soothing the nervous system. I would also say rose is a wonderful you know, heart medicine that could work really well, those two plants in conjunction with each other, um, just for Hmm. that general sort of uplifting, soothing to the nervous system, just really good heart medicine. So how would that work if somebody has, because roses are widespread. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the essential oils are very expensive because it takes so much of the Oh yeah. Plant to produce it, but what parts of the plant would you use? So for rose, I would just be using the the petals to make tea from or to do an, an infused oil, or some folks will infuse the petals into like honey or agave nectar, or I've even done it into maple syrup. And then also after the plant has flowered, when you have the the hip on the rose, uh-huh. those are extremely high in vitamin C and those will stay on the plant like through the the winter. So that's a good thing. You know, you can harvest that if you don't want to leave it on the plant for the birds, you can pull that off in the fall and use that as a tea as well. And it's got so much vitamin C in it. That's awesome. 
So I guess that kind of leads me to another question, not intentionally, but it has kind of turned out this way that my podcast has appealed to a lot of people who are into cannabis. Mm -hmm. And so that's an herb also. So is that something that is part of a growing part of an herbal practice in the United States? I think for some folks it is. It has not been part of that for me just because, you know, it's not legal here in Tennessee. Uh They recently started allowing some hemp farming and then now we've got like the CBD, the oil stores popping up on like every corner, it seems. So for me, that's not something I've really experimented with. I'm I'm kind of sitting back and watching with that because it seems like in the same way that, you know, five years ago, everyone told us to put coconut oil on everything in our life. And then it was essential. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of sitting back and waiting. I mean, I know there's been some great studies on its efficacy for kids with seizures and things like that. But then I also now see it to where people are basically saying, are you a breathing human? Oh, you should be taking CBD oil. And I'm like, oh, I know. Eh, I don't know about that. So the idea that there's so much business behind it now and right. huge corporations it kind of bothers me. Right. With any plant medicine you're working with, I think you need to really be wary of who is growing this, what are their growing practices and where are they growing it? And I think this is a really good example because hemp is a bioaccumulator. So uh-huh. if you're growing that on land that has heavy metals in it, I don't want that. Yeah. And you certainly don't want to smoke it. That seems like the worst idea. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Not such a good thing. So I know there are folks out there that have, you know, really solid growing practices. I'm not poo-pooing the whole industry by any means. I just think before I jumped into any of that, I would be doing so much research to, to check where I was sourcing that from. Well, that's a great message because I've had people in the podcast talking about it and the people I'm featuring, they are using alternative farming methods or closed loop systems and they really actually know what's going into the plant. Nice. But other than that, I mean, like the vast, vast majority of products out there or the product out there is probably not even safe. And it's kind of alarming because it's growing so fast. Yeah. Expensive price is not an indicator of good quality and good growing practices, but a really low price usually tells me that I probably don't want to purchase that. And I worry that folks, you know, looking at just getting into this because someone recommended it to them, they're going to hop on Amazon and get like the cheapest thing they can. Is it a safe product for them to be using? I just, I have a lot of concerns. Yeah. Makes sense. You're, you mentioned you have some acreage and you have some forested land mm-hmm. and you're actually going and planting some of the herbs in the forest. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So we have 13 acres of land. Um, about nine of that is pretty heavily wooded and, and sloped. And so it's not really buildable. There's like an old logging trail that runs on part of it. And then the rest of it is pretty much you're just scampering down a pretty, pretty steep hillside. So there are a lot of medicinal plants that, you know, grow in the forest. They're pretty slow growing. And so you're looking at five to seven years from the time you plant something before you're able to go and harvest that, especially looking at plants that you can make use of without having to actually pull the entire plant out of the ground. So like golden seedle mm-hmm. is a good example of that because most people are using the, the rhizome. So you can, if you're very gentle, you can take that plant up and after it's had a few years of growth on it, you can clip off just the end piece of the rhizome and then replant the plant without killing it. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in growing plants like that I'm a member of United Plant Savers, which focuses on plant conservation because the problem is a lot of these plants are being over-harvested, especially these ones that have such a lengthy growing time. Folks are just wiping out patches of these because they're over-harvesting them and just selling them as quickly as they can. And then there's nothing left. And so these are now, a lot of these plants are now on the endangered list. I've heard about some of the illegal foraging in California for succulents. They have really gigantic, beautiful succulents and people were coming in and just decimating an entire park. 
Oh. And then also I've heard about people hunting ginseng. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going on in your area, oh, but I think yeah. it's the southeast, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's ha- it happens in our area too. And like actually specifically on our land, we heard some stories from the folks in our area about the people that we bought this property from and some of our neighbors adjacent to us. I actually decided not to grow ginseng on our property just because I didn't want to have to deal with people coming through our land and potentially, you know, if you find one ginseng plant, then you're going to keep looking across the whole property. And I just didn't want to deal with that. So we decided not to even grow it here. Wow, that's sad, but sounds, I guess, pretty smart. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a safety thing. But, you know, again, the, the bummer with ginseng is that kind of like what I was saying with golden seal is you could harvest this slowly and not have to kill the entire plant to do that. But most of the ginseng that we're harvesting here in the U.S. is actually being exported to China. And part of how they value the plant and it's held in such high esteem there is they want the entire plant. They want to see what it looks like even up to the point where it attaches to the above ground parts of the plant. And so if you don't harvest the full plant, they're not interested in buying it. Wow. Ginseng and and a lot of these other woodland medicinals There are folks that are growing them, you know, not in the woods where they're just setting up huge indoor facilities with just shade cloth over it to try to replicate that same environment. But are the Chinese interested? Well, that's, yeah, that's where you get into the interesting issue then of you're able to grow these plants a lot faster because you're controlling the light and the watering and everything. But when those roots come out of the ground, they don't look the same way that plants grown in the woods do. And so they will be sold, but they're going to be sold for far less money. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a water feature on your land? We do have a stream. It's really hard to get to. It's at the bottom of some pretty steep, steep hills here. But we also have an area, our our soil is very clay heavy. And so we definitely hold water in different parts of the land. So even the parts that aren't wooded, I definitely have an area that pools a lot of water. And so I'm thinking about kind of trying to build up a swale around that to kind of intentionally have a small pond just cool the more yeah i really just want to make some more microclimates on the property they're definitely plants and herbs that grow better you know with wet feet so to speak so you know things like marshmallow and and things like that so canna lilies yeah i know and i think didn't you say you started at the farmer's market that was one of the plants you were selling yeah i was selling focused on rhizome so lilies uh like day lilies and irises, some canna lilies mainly, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, I loved hearing your kind of business model behind that where you were going and doing landscaping for folks and then kind of thinning out, you know, the plants they already had there and then you could turn around and take those to sell at market. I was like, that is brilliant. You know, it's a it's a great business model that I did not think of myself, but I wasn't the right guy to like go on with that. But mm. I think it's a feasible business model for people all over the country because if you get into people's backyards and talk to them about permaculture and sustainable management, you could literally transform your entire area. And it's probably going to be somebody who's more of a landscaper. Mm-hmm. But so cool. when you find the right collectors, there are people who are so passionate about the plants that they want to be involved in swapping with other people that you know. And I, I had a great opportunity to help people transform their yards. It was really fun. I love that. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. Is there anything more about herbalism that you want to talk about? I think there are some really exciting things happening in terms of working with what we refer to as invasive plants. You know, most people, you you talk about invasive plants. So like the mimosa tree that we just talked about or, you know, multiflora rose here has, you know, taken over a lot of parts. But then we can also talk about the flip side of that in terms of, you know, the uses for these plants. 
I don't know a lot about Lyme disease and, and treating it herbally yet and all the co-infections that go with it because it's pretty complicated. Uh-huh. Uh, Stephen Buner is an herbalist who has done tons of work with this. He's, I think, kind of leading the charge in terms of the research for this. And there's an invasive plant here along the waterways in Tennessee and, and other surrounding states called Japanese knotweed that he says he thinks is the most important plant we have to work with in fighting Lyme disease right now. So I just think that's so fascinating. I mean, Japanese knotweed is a plant that they'll do statewide like river cleanup days and stuff here where they're just trying to rip the plant out because they've even tried to hit it with Roundup, you know, glyphosate and things like that. And it just seems to laugh and grow even bigger. It just does not care. Oh, and the other thing with Japanese knotweed is resveratrol the antioxidant that we yeah. talked about finding in like red wine that people got so hopped up on a few years ago it's a, <laughs> it's a huge source of that amazing yeah and so i just i kind of look at these plants and wonder you know why are these plants here is there a purpose for them being here rather you know rather than us just like freaking out and being like we have to rip them all out you know why not that's ask a really ourselves? cool point Again, the thing you need grows outside your door. Well, why is this showing up everywhere? Wow. So, I mean, that's a really cool plant energy concept mm -hmm. that it's literally the earth is putting those the nutrients there or the microbial life that will foster a plant that was needed in that environment. Right. And I just think, you know, before we... We've spent so much money trying to round up, you know, Japanese knotweed out of here, which obviously I don't want us to do to any plant, but then even just the cleanup crews of going in and pulling it out. And I'm like, let's stop a minute. Let's figure out what it's doing here. It's taking up an ecological niche for a reason. Let, let's figure that out. Um, another one that I love that's a really great one to forage for here, the state wildflower in Tennessee is the passion flower, which most people know from the fruit if they've ever eaten eaten that or like a passion flower ice cream or something like that. But the flower and the leaves can be used to make either a tincture or a tea. It's really helpful if you're dealing with insomnia, especially the type of insomnia where you just get caught in those like circular thinking thought loops. It can be really good for that. It's just really kind of like calming if you're feeling stressed out. And so if you're just stuck in bed staring at the ceiling and your mind is just on overdrive, this can be a really, really helpful tea or tincture to take for that. We'll talk about insomnia and it's like, there are so many different kinds, you know, do you have trouble falling asleep or is it that you have trouble staying asleep or are you dealing with anxiety dreams or nightmares? We can get really nuanced in terms of like what plant allies we want to bring in, you know, to, to work with this. The more I know and the deeper I get into that, you know, just kind of figuring out like we may classify these plants as having similar properties, but they can actually be very varied. And so what are some other plants that are used for insomnia? Another one would be hops, actually. Mm. And so, you know, maybe you can tell yourself that beer is medicinal that you're having at the end of the night. But yeah, hops is a great one. Valerian, which is, oh, it's so stinky if you've ever smelled it. That can be useful. I also think going back to even like the rose, um, just because it's such a calming and just soothing herb. So if you're just having like a little bit of light insomnia, it's not a chronic condition for you. I would look at rose as well. I think could be really good. When I work with clients, we focus a lot on lifestyle. It's not just, hey, come in and I give you this bag of tea or this tincture and I send you on your way. And so a lot of times before we even get to the herbs, if we're talking about insomnia, we're talking about what's your caffeine intake like? What kind of stress are you under? How's your sleep hygiene? You know, do you have a regular sleep schedule? And, you know, things like that. And a lot of times it doesn't even matter what tea I'm giving you. 
if you get into the habit of you start winding down for the night by making this cup of tea and you sort of have this like evening ritual, that can be so calming. You might find your sleep is improving regardless of what specific herbs are actually in that cup. That's so smart. It's very similar to the priming concept of people who struggle with procrastination or whatever it is in their work or anything. It's just if you can prime yourself in the right way and change your environment, then it makes everything just happen so much more easily. Right, exactly. When you can sort of stack habits and functions on top of each other, you know, they always say if you're trying to make a new habit, link it to something you're already doing all the time. Totally. And and yeah, I think that definitely works. So if you're someone who you already know you lay your clothes out at night for the next day or something, go ahead and start linking that to that's when I turn my phone off and stop looking at it, or that's when I make a cup of tea or whatever good habit you're trying to instill for yourself. I like it. Now, what about someone who's living in the city, like New York City? Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about foraging for herbs within a city? You can definitely do this. It's a thing. Like, I love it. So I think probably the most famous like city forager I can think of would be Steve Brill, who actually... He got arrested for foraging. I think it was in a New York City park because they had tried to make it illegal. You know, the biggest thing if you're going to do urban foraging is just finding out, you know, in the area where you're looking for stuff, if you're going to park, finding out, you know, are they spraying with chemicals and just kind of getting a feel for that. But I think a lot of the plants we talked about earlier, like the chickweed, the cleavers and the violet, you're probably going to be able to find those most places, especially, you know, early spring when those new greens start popping up and before the grass, you know, kind of starts to crowd them out again. That's a great time to look for those. And also, you know, dandelion, I think is just the bane of every suburban lawn's existence. But it's such an amazing plant. And I think the fact that it is so resilient and it just continues to pop up everywhere. How many pictures have we seen of dandelions just like growing up through concrete? I think it's really important. I I don't think the listeners are going to probably be the type of person who's spraying their dandelions. I don't think anyone who's listening to the podcast, but (laughs) I mean, it's like critical that we not do that because the bees are super attracted to them and putting a pesticide on a plant that a bee wants to land on is like the stupidest idea. Oh, for sure. And, you know, even if you're just quote unquote doing it to your lawn, you know, that runs off to all the other places and into our waterways. Like, I don't, you know, want that happening here. But yeah, dandelion is so amazing. And every part of it from, you know, flower to leaves to root, you know, every part of it has different either edible or medicinal uses. So, you know, the flower petals, you know, you can pull the flower petals off and put them in salads. If you've never had like a fried dandelion fritter, are you even living yet? I, you know, I don't know. Well, I haven't been living. I'm going to have to try that. Oh, man. I mean, it's fried food. Like, you can't really go wrong. I mean, it's maybe not the healthiest thing, but it is delicious. So I would say definitely give that a shot. Um, <laughs> the leaves for dandelion, they actually have more iron than spinach or kale. And... It's also a diuretic. The leaves also are really high in potassium and they can be used for lowering blood pressure. Most of us know someone in our lives that are, you know, dealing with that. The also interesting thing about dandelion leaves is if you're someone who's on like a pharmaceutical grade diuretic for whatever health reason, a lot of times one of the side effects of that, because, you know, it's making you urinate more frequently, the side effect from that can be that you have too low of a potassium level. It's leaching the potassium out of your body. And so one of the really cool things about dandelion leaves is because it's so high in potassium, that if you're using that instead, you're not getting that that mineral leaching effect, basically. Caveat there is if you are on a pharmaceutical diuretic, you probably wouldn't want to also use dandelion leaf at the same time. So, And then the roots, you know, if you're trying to get off of caffeine, 
they can be used as like a roasted coffee substitute, which I have not tried that. I'm not really a coffee person in the first place, but I, I, uh. hear, <laughs> I hear lots of folks talk about that. And if you want a good, good workout, go, go dig some dandelion and, you know, burdock roots up. Like that's a good little workout for you. You know, kidding. So the burdock and I guess, so each, each herb, would you say that, is it almost all of them that you can eat all the plant or are there some of them that are only the leaves and flowers or only the root? Yeah, I think it depends from, you know, from plant to plant. And then you'll find that different parts of it have different, you know, medicinal uses and stuff as well. With dandelion, like the root of that is is really powerful as like a liver cleansing tonic. Uh-huh. Whereas like the leaf has maybe a little bit of that property, but not nearly as much. And then also um, dandelion roots, if you dig them in the fall, they contain a quality called inulin, which is a prebiotic that your body needs to help with gut flora and things like that. So we're always focused on probiotics now in our culture, which is good. We definitely need it but we need the prebiotics as well. And so dandelion root, burdock root, those are really good sources of that. And then you can find burdock root a lot of times in international markets. It's sometimes called uh, gobo, I believe. And yes. Can, yeah, you can saute that and cook with it. It's really good. It's like a high fiber kind of. It's like a undigestible fiber, but it has those prebiotics that are so important for our digestive health. So cool. You mentioned your podcast. Do you want to plug it again? So I have, you know, my podcast called Tending Seeds, which comes out uh, twice a month and um, hopefully more at some point, maybe in the fall when the farm is not so busy. So you can find me there and that's on, you know, all major podcast platforms. I'm really active on Instagram. Uh, my name there is Fox and Elder, all one word. Elder is my favorite herbal plant. And I'm not selling anything at the moment. I do offer consultations to folks if they if they want. And so we do a consultation which includes one herbal remedy. And so I can do that either in person or I do a lot of them kind of like we're doing this podcast over uh-huh. the internet with like video chat. And then I just mail you whatever thing we decide on as well as like some other like ideas and tips for kind of more lifestyle changes to make. And we try to just do like a few things at a time and you know build off of that. So yeah, folks can get in touch with me through Instagram if they're interested in doing a consultation. And I'm hoping to be adding some more things, doing like an herbal CSA, hopefully by next fall. So will it be local or will you also, because of the abil- ability to dry certain things, will you sell it to people elsewhere? Oh yeah, no, that'll be totally mailable doing herbal products so you know teas and salves and just the full full range of products so just basically doing like curated you know seasonal offerings of whatever's coming off the farm and the land here perfect uh i really look forward to chatting again sometime awesome thank you good luck with everything (laughs) bye-bye thanks for listening to the podcast i'm really grateful to you and all the people who have reached out as the podcast has evolved Please subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast wherever you listen from, and leave positive reviews on iTunes if you want to support the show. You can follow my adventures on Instagram at Get In My Garden and see some of the videos and pictures of what I'm doing here in New Mexico. Reach out there or on the website getinmygarden.com. Finally, sign up for my new email list, which will soon feature awesome supplemental content to go with new podcast episodes. This is also on the website.